0: Chapter 8 of G. K. Chesterton's Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Time of Transition dickens was back in london by june of eighteen forty five about this time he became the first editor of the daily news a paper which he had largely planned and suggested in which i trust remembers its semi-divine origin that is his thought had been running as suggested in the last chapter somewhat monotonously on his christmas domesticities is again suggested by the rather singular fact that he originally wished the daily news to be called The Cricket. Probably he was haunted again with his old vision of a homely, tale-telling periodical, such as had broken off in Master Humphrey's clock. About this time, however, he was peculiarly unsettled. Almost as soon as he had taken the editorship, he threw it up, and having only recently come back to England, he soon made up his mind go back to the continent. In the May of 1846 he ran over to Switzerland, and tried to write Dombey and Son at Luzon. Tried to, I say, because his letters are full of an angry impotence. He could not get on. He attributed this especially to his love of London, and his loss of it. The absence of streets, and numbers of figures. My figures seemed disposed to stagnate without crowds about them, but he also, with shrewdness, attributed it more generally to the laxer and more wandering life he had led for the last two years the american tour the Italian tour, diversified generally speaking only with slight literary productions. His ways were never punctual or healthy, but they were also never unconscientious as far as work was concerned. If he walked all night, he could write all day. But in this strange exile, or interregnum, he did not seem able to fall into any habits, even bad habits. A restlessness beyond all his experience had fallen for a season upon the most restless of the children of men. It may be a mere coincidence, but this break in his life very nearly coincided with the important break in his art. Dombey and Son, planned in all probability some time before, was destined to be the last of a quite definite series, the early novels of Dickens. The difference between the books from the beginning up to Dombey and the books from David Copperfield to the end may be hard to state dogmatically, but it is evident to everyone with any literary sense very coarsely the case may be put by saying that he diminished in the story as a whole the practice of pure caricature still more coarsely it may be put in the phrase that he began to practice realism if we take mr stiggins say as a clergyman depicted at the beginning of his literary career and mr crisparkle say as a clergyman depicted at the end of it it is evident that the difference does not merely consist in the fact that the first is a less desirable clergyman than the second. It consists in the nature of our desire for either of them. The glory of Mr. Chris Barkle partly consists in the fact that he might really exist anywhere in any country town into which we may happen to stray. The glory of Mr. Stiggins wholly consists in the fact that he could not possibly exist anywhere except in the head of Dickens." Dickens has the secret recipe of that divine dish. In some sense, therefore, when we say that he became less of a caricaturist, we mean that he became less of a creator. That original violent vision of all things, which he had seen from his boyhood, began to be mixed with other men's milder visions, and with the light of common day. He began to understand and practice other than his own mad merits began to have some movement toward the merits of other writers, toward the mixed emotion of Thackeray, or the solidity of George Eliot, and this must be said for the process, that the fierce wine of Dickens could endure some dilution. On the whole, perhaps his primal personalism was all the better when surging against some saner restraints. Perhaps a flavor of strong stiggins goes a long way, perhaps the colossal Crumless might be cut down into six or seven quite creditable characters. For my own part, for reasons which I shall afterwards mention, I am in real doubt about the advantage of this realistic education of Dickens. I am not sure that it made his books better, but I am sure it made them less bad. He made fewer mistakes, undoubtedly, He succeeded in eliminating much of the mere rant or cant of his first books. He threw away much of the old padding, all the more annoying, perhaps, in a literary sense, because he did not mean it for padding, but for essential eloquence. But he did not produce anything actually better than Mr. Chuckster. But then there is nothing better than Mr. Chuckster. Certain works of art, such as The Venus of Milo, exhaust our aspiration. Upon the whole, this may perhaps be safely said of the transition. Those who have any doubt about Dickens can have no doubt of the superiority of the later books. Beyond question they have less of what annoys us in Dickens, but do not, if you are in the company of any ardent adorers of Dickens, as I hope for your sake you are, do not insist too urgently and exclusively on the splendor of Dickens' last works, or they will discover that you do not like him, Dombey and Son is the last novel in the first manner. David Copperfield is the first novel in the last. The increase in care and realism in the second of the two is almost startling. Yet even in Dombey and Son we can see the coming of a change, however faint, if we compare it with his first fantasies, such as Nicholas Nickleby or the old Curiosity Shop. The central story is still melodrama. But it is much more tactful and effective melodrama. Melodrama is a form of art legitimate like any other, as noble as farce, almost as noble as pantomime. The essence of melodrama is that it appeals to the moral sense in a highly simplified state, just as farce appeals to the sense of humour in a highly simplified state. Farce creates people who are so intellectually simple as to hide in packing-cases. Or pretend to be their own aunts. Melodrama creates people so morally simple as to kill their enemies in Oxford Street and repent on seeing their mother's photograph. The object of the simplification in farce and melodrama is the same, and quite artistically legitimate, the object of gaining a resounding rapidity of action which subtleties would obstruct. And this can be done well or ill, The simplified villain can be Spirited Charcoal Sketch or a mere black smudge. Carker is a Spirited Charcoal Sketch, Ralph Nickleby a mere black smudge. The tragedy of Edith Dombey teems with unlikelihood, but it teems with life. That Dombey should give his own wife censure through his own business manager is impossible, I will not say in a gentleman, but in a person of ordinary sane self-conceit. But once having got the inconceivable trio before the footlights, Dickens gives us good ringing dialogue, very different from the mere rants in which Ralph Nickleby figures in the unimaginable character of a rhetorical moneylender. And there is another point of technical improvement in this book over such books as Nicholas Nickleby. It is not only a basic idea, but a good basic idea. There is a real artistic opportunity. IN THE CONCEPTION OF A SOLEMN AND SELFISH MAN OF AFFAIRS, FEELING FOR HIS MALE HEIR, HIS FIRST AND LAST EMOTION, MINGLED OF A THIN FLAME OF TENDERNESS AND A STRONG FLAME OF PRIDE. BUT WITH ALL THESE POSSIBILITIES, THE SERIOUS EPISODE OF THE Dombies SERVES ULTIMATELY ONLY TO SHOW HOW UNFITTED DICKENS WAS FOR SUCH THINGS, HOW FITTED HE WAS FOR SOMETHING OPPOSITE. The incurable poetic character, the hopelessly non-realistic character of Dickens's essential genius, could not have a better example than the story of the Dombies. For the story itself is probable. It is the treatment that makes it unreal. In attempting to paint the dark, pagan devotion of the father as distant from the ecstatic and Christian devotion of the mother, Dickens was painting something that was really there. This is no wild theme like the wanderings of Nell's grandfather or the marriage of Gride. A man of Dombey's type would love his son as he loves Paul. He would neglect his daughter as he neglects Florence, and yet we feel the utter unreality of it all, the utter reality of monsters like Stiggins or Mantellini. Dickens could only work in his own way, and that way was the wild way. We may almost say this, that he could only make his characters probable if he was allowed to make them impossible, give him license to say and do anything, that he could create beings as vivid as our own aunts and uncles, keep him to likelihood, and he could not tell the plainest tale so as to make it seem likely. The story of Pickwick is credible, though it is not possible. The story of Florence Dombey is incredible although it is true. An excellent example can be found in the same story. Major Bagstock is a grotesque, and yet he contains touch after touch of Dickens' quiet and sane observation of things as they are. He was always most accurate when he was most fantastic. Dombey and Florence are perfectly reasonable, but we simply know that they do not exist. The major is mountainously exaggerated, but we all feel that we have met him at Brighton. Nor is the rationale of the paradox difficult to see. Dickens exaggerated when he had found a real truth to exaggerate. It is a deadly error, an error at the back of much of the false placidity of our politics, to suppose that lies are told with excess and luxuriance, and truths told with modesty and restraint. Some of the most frantic lies on the face of life are told with modesty and restraint, for the simple reason that only modesty and restraint will save them. Many official declarations are just as dignified as Mr. Dombey, because they are just as fictitious. On the other hand, the man who has found a truth dances about like a boy who has found a shilling. He breaks into extravagances as the Christian churches broke into gargoyles. In one sense, truth alone can be exaggerated. Nothing else can stand the strain. The outrageous bagstock is a glowing and glaring exaggeration of a thing we have all seen in life, the worst and most dangerous of all its hypocrisies. For the worst and most dangerous hypocrite is not he who affects unpopular virtue, but he who affects popular vice, the jolly fellow of the saloon bar and the race-course is the real deceiver of mankind. He is misled more than any false prophet, and his victims cry to him out of hell. The excellence of the bagstock conception can best be seen if we compare it with the much weaker and more improbable knavery of Pecksniff. It would not be worth a man's while with any worldly object to pretend to be a holy and high-minded architect. The world does not admire holy and high-minded architects. The world does admire rough and tough old army men who swear at waiters and wink at women. Major Bagstock is simply the perfect prophecy of that decadent jingoism which corrupted England of late years. England has been duped not by the cant of goodness but by the cant of badness. It has been fascinated by a quite fictitious cynicism and reach that last and strangest of all impostures in which the mask is as repulsive as the face. Dombey and Son provides us with yet another instance of this general fact in Dickens. He could only get to the most solemn emotions adequately if he got to them through the grotesque. He could only, so to speak, really get into the inner chamber by coming down the chimney. Like his own most lovable lunatic in Nicholas Nickleby, a good example is such a character as Toots. Toots is what none of Dickens' dignified characters are, in the most serious sense, a true lover. He is the twin of Romeo. He has a passion, humility, self-knowledge, a mind lifted into all magnanimous thoughts, everything that goes with the best kind of romantic love. His excellence in the art of love can only be expressed by the somewhat violent expression that he is as good a lover as Walter Gay is a bad one. Florence surely deserved her father's scorn if she could prefer Gay to Toots. It is neither a joke nor any kind of exaggeration to say that in the vacillation of Toots, Dickens not only came nearer to the psychology of true love than he ever came anywhere else, but nearer than anyone else ever came to ask for the loved one, and then not to dare cross the threshold, to be invited by her, to long to accept and then to lie, in order to decline. These are the funny things that Mr. Toots did, and that every honest man who yells with laughter at him has done also. For the moment, however, I can only mention this matter as a pendant case, to be the case of Major Bagstock, an example of the way in which Dickens had to be ridiculous in order to begin to be true. His characters that begin solemn and futile. His characters that begin frivolous and solemn in the best sense. His foolish figures are not only more entertaining than his serious figures, they are also much more serious. The Marchioness is not only much more laughable than Little Nell, she is also much more of all that Little Nell was meant to be. Much more really devoted, pathetic, and brave. Dick Swiveller is not only a much funnier fellow than Kit, he is also a much more genuine fellow, being free from that slight strain of meekness or the snobbishness of the respectable poor which the wise and perfect chuckster wisely and perfectly perceived in Kit. Susan Nipper is not only more of a comic character than Florence, she is more of a heroine than Florence any day of the week. In Our Mutual Friend, we do not for some reason or another "'feel really very much excited "'about the fall or rescue of Lizzie Hexham. "'She seems too romantic to be really pathetic. "'But we do feel excited about the rescue of Miss Podsnap "'because she is, like Toots, a holy fool. "'Because her pink nose and pink elbows "'and candid outcry and open indecent affections "'do convey to us a sense of innocence "'because her pink nose and pink elbows "'and candid outcry and open indecent affections, do convey to us a sense of innocence, helpless among human dragons, of Andromeda tied naked to a rock. Dickens had to make a character humorous before he could make it human. It was the only way he knew, and he ought to have always adhered to it. Whether he knew it or not, the only two really touching figures in Martin Chuzzlewit are the Mrs. Pecksniff, Of the things he tried to treat unsmilingly and grandly, we can all make game to our heart's content, but when once he has laughed at a thing, it is sacred for ever. Dombey, however, means first and foremost the finale of the early Dickens. It is difficult to say exactly in what it is that we perceive that the old crudity ends here and does not reappear in David Copperfield or in any of the novels after it. But so it certainly is. In detached scenes, and in characters indeed, Dickens kept up his farcical note, almost or quite to the end. But this is the last farce, this is the last work, in which a farcical license is tacitly claimed, a farcical note struck to start with. And in a sense, his next novel may be called his first novel. But the growth of this great novel, David Copperfield, is a thing very interesting, but at the same time very dark, for it is a growth in the soul. We have seen that Dickens' mind was in stir of change, that he was dreaming of art and even of realism. Hugely delighted, as he invariably was with his own books, he was humble enough to be ambitious. He was even humble enough to be envious. In the matter of art, for instance, in the narrow sense. Of arrangement and proportion in fictitious things, he began to be conscious of his deficiency and even in a stormy sort of way ashamed of it. He tried to gain completeness even while raging at anyone who called him incomplete, and in this manner of artistic instruction his ambition and his success too grew steadily up to the instant of his death. The end finds him attempting things that are at the opposite pole to the frank formlessness of Pickwick. His last book, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, depends entirely upon construction, even upon a centralized strategy. He staked everything upon a plot. He who had been the weakest of plotters, weaker than Sim Tappertit, he essayed a detective story, he who could never keep a secret, and he has kept it to this day. A new Dickens was really being born when Dickens died. And as with art, so with reality. He wished to show that he could instruct as well as anybody. He also wished to show that he could be as accurate as anybody. And in this connection, as in many others, we must recur constantly to the facts mentioned in connection with America and with his money matters. We must recur, I mean, to the central fact that his desires were extravagant in quantity, but not in quality that his wishes were excessive, but not eccentric. It must never be forgotten that sanity was his ideal, even when he seemed almost insane. It was thus with his literary aspirations. He was brilliant, but he wished sincerely to be solid. Nobody out of an asylum could deny that he was a genius and a unique writer, but he did not wish to be a unique writer, but a universal writer much of the manufactured pathos or rhetoric against which his enemies quite rightly rail is really due to his desire to give all sides of life at once to make his book a cosmos instead of a tale he was sometimes really vulgar in his wish to be a literary witly, a universal provider thus it was that he felt about realism and the truth to live. nothing is easier than to defend dickens as dickens but Dickens wished to be everybody else. Nothing is easier than to defend Dickens' world as a fairyland, of which he alone has the key to defend him as one defends Maeterlinck, or any other original writer. But Dickens was not content with being original. He had a wild wish to be true. He loved truth so much in the abstract that he sacrificed to the shadow of it in his own glory. He denied his own divine originality, and pretended that he had plagiarized from life. He disowned his soul's children, and said that he had picked them up in the street. And in this mixed and heated mood of anger and ambition, vanity and doubt, and new a great design was born, he loved to be romantic, yet he desired to be real. How, if he wrote of a thing that was real, and showed that it was romantic? He loved real life, but he also loved his own way. HOW IF HE WROTE OF HIS OWN LIFE, BUT WROTE IT IN HIS OWN WAY? HOW IF HE SHOWED THE CARPING CRITICS WHO DOUBTED THE EXISTENCE OF HIS STRANGE CHARACTERS, HIS OWN, YET STRANGER EXISTENCE? HOW IF HE FORCED THESE pendants AND UNBELIEVERS TO ADMIT THAT WELLER AND PECKSNIFF, Crumless AND Swiveller, WHOM THEY THOUGHT SO IMPROBABLY WILD AND WONDERFUL, WERE LESS WILD AND WONDERFUL THAN CHARLES DICKENS? WHAT IF HE ENDED THE QUARRELS ABOUT WHETHER HIS ROMANCES COULD OCCUR? by confessing that his romance had occurred. For some time past, probably during the greater part of his life, he had made notes for an autobiography. I have already quoted an admirable passage from these notes, a passage reproduced in David Copperfield with little more alteration than a change of proper names. The passage which describes Captain Porter and the debtor's petition in the marshal Say. But he probably perceived at last what a less keen intelligence must ultimately have perceived, that if an autobiography is really to be honest, it must be turned into a work of fiction. If it is to really tell the truth, it must at all costs profess not to. No man dare say of himself over his own name how badly he has behaved. No man dare say of himself over his own name how well he has behaved. Moreover, of course, a touch of fiction is almost always essential to the real conveying of fact, because fact is experienced as experienced has a fragmentariness which is bewildering at first hand, and quite blinding at second hand. Facts have at least to be sorted into compartments, and the proper head and tail given back to each. The perfection and pointiness of art are sort of a substitute for the pungency of actuality. Without this selection, in a completion, our life seems a tangle of unfinished tales, a heap of novels, all volume one. Dickens determined to make one complete novel of it. For though there are many other aspects of David Copperfield, this autobiographical aspect is, after all, the greatest. The point of the book is that, unlike all the other books of Dickens, it is concerned with quite common actualities, but it is concerned with them warmly and with warlike sympathies. It not only both realistic and romantic, it is realistic because it is romantic. It is a human nature described with human exaggeration. We all know the actual types in the book. They are not like the turgid and preternatural types elsewhere in Dickens. They are not purely poetic creations like Mr. Kenwigs or Mr. Bunsby. We all know that they exist, we all know the stiff-necked and humorous old-fashioned nurse, so conventional and yet so original, so dependent and yet so independent. We all know the intrusive stepfather, the abstract strange male, coarse, handsome, sulky, successful, a breaker-up of homes. We all know the erect and sardonic spinster, the spinster who is so mad in small things and so sane in great ones we all know the cock of the school we all know steerforth the creature whom the gods love and even the servants respect we know his poor and artistic mother so proud so gratified so desolate we know the rosa dartle type the lonely woman in whom affection itself has stagnated into a sort of poison but while these are real characters they are real characters lit up with the colors of youth and passion They are real people, romantically felt. That is to say, they are real people, felt as real people feel them. They are exaggerated, like all Dickens figures, but they are not exaggerated as personalities are exaggerated by an artist. They are exaggerated as personalities are exaggerated by their own friends and enemies. The strong souls are seen through the glorious haze of the emotions that strong souls really create we have murdstone as he would be to a boy who hated him and rightly for a boy would hate him we have steerforth as he would be to a boy who adored him and rightly for a boy would adore him it may be that if these persons had a mere terrestrial existence they appeared to other eyes more insignificant it may be that murdstone in common life was only a heavy business man with a human side that David was too sulky to find. It may be that Steerforth was only an inch or two taller than David, and only a shade or two above him in the lower middle classes. But this does not make the book less true. In cataloging the facts of life, the author must not omit that massive fact, illusion. When we say the book is true to life, we must stipulate that it is especially true to youth, even to boyhood. All the characters seem a little larger than they really were, for David is looking up at them, and the early pages of the book are in particular astonishingly vivid. Parts of it seem like fragments of our forgotten infancy. The dark house of childhood, the loneliness, the things half understood, the nurse with her inscrutable sulks and her more inscrutable tenderness, the sudden deportations to distant places— the seaside and its childish friendships all this stirs in us when we read it like something out of a previous existence above all dickens has excellently depicted the child enthroned in that humble circle which only in after years he perceives to have been humble modern and cultured persons i believe object to their children seeing kitchen company or being taught by a woman like peggotty But surely it is more important to be educated in a sense of human dignity and equality than in anything else in the world. And a child who has once had to respect a kind and capable woman of the lower classes will respect the lower classes forever. The true way to overcome the evil in class distinction is not to denounce them as revolutionists denounce them, but to ignore them as children ignore them. The early youth of David Copperfield is psychologically almost as good as his childhood. In one touch especially Dickens pierced the very core of the sensibilities of boyhood. It was when he made David more afraid of a manservant than of anybody or anything else. The lowering murdstone, the awful Mrs. Steerforth, are not so alarming to him as Mr. Littimer, the unimpeachable gentleman's gentleman. This is exquisitely true to the masculine emotions, especially in their underdeveloped state. A youth of common courage does not fear anything violent, but he is in mortal fear of anything correct. This may or may not be the reason that so few female writers understand their male characters. But this fact remains that the more sincere and passionate and even headlong a lad is, the more certain he is to be conventional. The bolder and freer he seems, the more the traditions of the college or the rules of the club will hold him with their jives of gossamer, and the less afraid he is of his enemies, the more cravenly he will be afraid of his friends. Herein lies indeed the darkest period of our ethical doubt and chaos. The fear is that as mortals become less urgent, manners will become more so, and men who have forgotten the fear of God will retain the fear of Litimer. We shall merely sink into a much meaner bondage. For when you break the great laws, you do not get liberty, you do not even get anarchy, you get the small laws. The sting and strength of this piece of fiction, then, do by a rare accident, lie in the circumstance that it was so largely founded on fact. David Copperfield is the great answer of a great romancer to the realists. David says, in effect, what? You say the Dickens' tales are too purple, really, to have happened? Why, this is what happened to me, and it seemed the most purple of all. You say that the Dickens' heroes are too handsome and triumphant? Why, no prince or paladin Aristio was ever so handsome and triumphant as the head boy seemed to me, walking before me in the sun. You say the Dickens' villains are too black? Why, there was no ink in the devil's inkstand black enough for my own stepfather when I had to live in the same house with him. The facts are quite the other way to what you suppose. This life of grey studies and half-tones, the absence of which you regret in Dickens, is only life as it is looked at. This life of heroes and villains is life as it is lived. The life a man knows best is exactly the life he finds most full of fierce certainties and battles between good and ill, his own. Oh yes, the life we do not care about may easily be a psychological comedy. Other people's lives may easily be human documents. But a man's own life is always a melodrama. There are other effective things in David Copperfield. They are not all autobiographical but they nearly all have this new note of quietude and reality. Micawber is gigantic, an immense assertion of the truth that the way to live is to exaggerate everything. But of him I shall have to speak more fully in another connection. Mrs. Micawber, artistically speaking, is even better. She is very nearly the best thing in Dickens. Nothing could be more absurd and at the same time more true than her clear argumentative manner of speech as she sits smiling and expounding in the midst of ruin what could be more lucid and logical and unanswerable than her statement of the prolegomena of the medway problem of which the first step must be to see the medway or of the coal trade which required talent and capital talent mr micawber has capital, Mr. Micawber has not. It seems as if something should have come at last out of so clear and scientific arrangement of the ideas. Indeed, if, as has been suggested, we regard David Copperfield as an unconscious defense of the poetic view of life, we might regard Mrs. Micawber as an unconscious satire on the logical view of life. She sits as a monument of the hopelessness and helplessness of reason, IN THE FACE OF THIS ROMANTIC AND UNREASONABLE WORLD. AS I HAVE TAKEN Dombey AND SON AS THE BOOK BEFORE THE TRANSITION, AND DAVID COPPERFIELD AS TYPICAL OF THE TRANSITION ITSELF, I MAY PERHAPS TAKE BLEAK HOUSE AS THE BOOK AFTER THE TRANSITION, AND SO COMPLETE THE DESCRIPTION. BLEAK HOUSE HAS EVERY CHARACTERISTIC OF HIS NEW REALISTIC CULTURE, Dickens, never now, as in his early books, revels in parts he likes, and scamps the parts he does not, after the manner of Scott. He does not, as in previous tales, leave his heroes and heroines mere walking gentlemen and ladies, with nothing at all to do but walk. He expends upon them at least ingenuity. By the expedients, successful or not, of the self-revelation of Esther, or the humorous inconsistencies of Rick, he makes his younger figures, if not lovable, at least not readable. Everywhere we see this tighter and more careful grip. He does not, for instance, when he wishes to denounce a dark institution, sandwich it in as a mere episode in a rambling story of adventure, as the debtor's prison is embedded in the body of Pickwick, or the low yorkshire school in the body of nicholas nickleby he puts the court of chancery in the center of the stage a somber and sinister temple and groups round it in artistic relations decaying and frantic figures its offspring and its satirists an old dipsomaniac keeps a rag and bone shop type of futility and antiquity and calls himself the lord chancellor A little mad old maid hangs about the courts on a forgotten or imaginary lawsuit and says, with perfect and pungent irony, I am expecting a judgment shortly, on the day of judgment. Rick and Ada and Esther are not mere strollers who have strayed into the court of law. They are its children, its symbols, and its victims. The righteous indignation of the book is not at the red heat of anarchy, but at the white heat of art. Its anger is patient and plodding, like some historic revenge. Moreover, it slowly and carefully creates the real psychology of oppression, the endless formality, the endless unemotional urbanity, the endless hope deferred. These things make one feel the fact of injustice more than the madness of Nero. For it is not the activeness of tyranny that maddens, but its passiveness— we hate the deafness of the god more than his strength. Silence is the unbearable repartee. Again, we can see in this book strong traces of an increase in social experience. Dickens, as his fame carried him into more fashionable circles, began really to understand something of what is strong and what is weak in the English upper class. Sir Leicester Dedlock is far more effective condemnation of oligarchy than the ugly swagger of Sir Mulberry Hawk, because pride stands out more plainly in all its impotence and insolence as the one weakness of a good man than as one of the million weaknesses of a bad one. Dickens, like all young radicals, had imagined in his youth that aristocracy rested upon the hardiness of somebody. He found it, as we all do, that it rests upon the softness of everybody it is very hard not to like sir leicester Dedlock, not to applaud his silly old speeches so foolish so manly so genuinely english so disastrous to england it is true that the english people love a lord but it is not true that they fear him rather if anything they pity him there creeps into their love something of the feeling they have towards a baby or a black man. In their hearts they think it admirable that Sir Leicester Dedlock should be able to speak at all, and so a system which no iron laws and no bloody battles could possibly force upon a people is preserved from generation to generation by pure, weak, good nature. In Bleak House occurs the character of Harold Skimpole, the character whose alleged likeness to Leigh Hunt as laid Dickens open to so much disapproval. Unjust disapproval, I think, as far as fundamental morals are concerned. In method he was a little clamorous and clumsy, as, indeed, he was apt to be. But when he said that it was possible to combine a certain tone of conversation, taken from a particular man, with other characteristics which were not meant to be his, he surely said what all men who write stories know, A work of fiction often consists in combining a pair of whiskers seen in one street with a crime seen in another. He may possibly have really meant only to make Lay Hunt's light philosophy the mask for a new kind of scamp as a variant on the pious mask of pecksniff or the candid mask of bagstock. He may never once have had the unfriendly thought, Suppose Hunt behaved like a rascal. He may have only had the fanciful thought, Suppose a rascal behaved like Hunt. But there is good reason for mentioning Skimpole, especially in the character of Skimpole. Dickens displayed again a quality that was very admirable in him. I mean a disposition to see things sanely, and to satirize even his own faults. He was commonly occupied in satirizing the gadgrinds, the economists, the men of smiles and self-help, For him there was nothing poorer than their wealth, nothing more selfish than their self-denial, and against them he was in the habit of pitting the people of a more expansive habit. The happy swivellers and the micawbers who, if they were poor, were at least as rich as their last penny could make them. He loved that great Christian carelessness that seeks its meat from God. It was merely a kind of uncontrollable honesty. forced him into urging the other side. He could not disguise from himself or from the world that man who began by seeking his meat from his neighbor, without apprising his neighbor of the fact. He had shown how good irresponsibility could be. He could not stoop to hide how bad it could be. He created Skimpole, and Skimpole is the dark underside of Micawber. In attempting Skimpole, he attempted something with great and urgent meaning. He attempted it, I say. I do not assert that he carried it through. As has been remarked, he was never successful in describing psychological change. His characters are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and critics have complained very justly of the crude villainy of Skimpole's action in the matter of Joe and Mr. Bucket. Certainly Skimpole had no need to commit a clumsy treachery, to win a clumsy bribe. He had only to call on Mr. Jarndyce, He had lost his honor too long to need to sell it. The effect is bad, but I repeat that the aim was great. Dickens wished under the symbol of skimpole to point out a truth, which is, perhaps, the most terrible in moral psychology. I mean the fact that it is by no means easy to draw the line between light and heavy offense. He desired to show that there are no faults, however kindly, that we can afford to flatter or to let alone. He meant that perhaps Skimpole had once been as good a man as Swiveller. If flattered, or let alone our kindliest fault, can destroy our kindliest virtue. A thing may begin as very human weakness, and end as very inhuman weakness. Skimpole means that the extremes of evil are much nearer than we think. A man may begin by being too generous to pay his debts, and end by being too mean to pay his debts. For the vices are very strangely in league and encourage each other. A sober man may become a drunkard through being a coward. A brave man may become a coward through being a drunkard. That is the thing Dickens was darkly trying to convey in Skimpole, that a man might become a mountain of selfishness if he attended only to the Dickens' virtues. There is nothing that can be neglected. There is no such thing, he meant, as a peccadillo. I have dwelt on this consciousness of his because, alas, it had a very sharp edge for himself. Even while he was permitting a fault, originally small, to make a comedy of Skimpole, a fault originally small was making a tragedy of Charles Dickens. For Dickens also had a bad quality, not intrinsically very terrible, which he allowed to wreck his life. He also had a small weakness that could sometimes become stronger than all his strengths. His selfishness was not, it need hardly be said, the selfishness of Gradgrind. He was particularly compassionate and liberal, nor was it in the least the selfishness of Skimpole, he was entirely self-dependent, industrious, and dignified. His selfishness was wholly a selfishness of the nerves. Whatever his whim or the temperature of the instant told him to do must be done. He was the type of man who would break a window if it would not open or give him air. And this weakness of his had, by the time of which we speak, led to a breach between himself and his wife which he was too exasperated and excited to heal in time. Everything must be put right and put right at once with him. If London bored him, he must go to the continent at once. If the continent bored him, he must come back to London at once. If the day was too noisy, the whole household must be quiet. If night was too quiet, the whole household must wake up. Above all, he had the supreme character of the domestic despot, that his good temper was, if possible, more despotic than his bad temper. When he was miserable, as he often was, poor fellow, they only had to listen to his railings. When he was happy, they had to listen to his novels. All this, which was mainly mere excitability, did not seem to amount to much, It did not in the least mean that he had ceased to be a clean-living and kind-hearted and quite honest man, but there was this evil about it, that he did not resist his little weakness at all. He pampered it, as skimpole pampered his, and it separated him and his wife. A mere silly trick of temperament did everything that the blackest misconduct could have done. A random sensibility, started about the shuffling of papers or the shutting of a window, ended by tearing two clean Christian people from each other, like a blast of bigamy or adultery. End of chapter 8 The Transition